Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron, and this is part two of the Gox saga. In our first part, we had on Mr. Brock Pierce to talk about his plan to revive Mount Gox in an episode called Gox Rising. Brock feels that Mount Gox is a stain on the crypto space. Also, he wants to compensate the victims of Mt. Gox's hack and make sure all the money gets returned to them. However, there's a lot of critics in the crypto space that says that his focus on Mt. Gox and his ambitions to revive it are a little less than genuine. One of those people who have been investigating Mt. Gox since the beginning, since the hack 2014, is Mr. Kim Nielsen. Kim was a customer of Mt. Gox and ever since the hack has painstakingly kept up with all of the information, wrote blogs, and kept us all informed. Kim's on the show today to talk about some of the things that was said on the Brock Pierce episode, tell us the story from a fact-based perspective, and also touch on some of the claims of ownership of Mt. Gox. But before we get into that conversation, wherever you're listening to this podcast, make sure you're subscribed, leave us a rating and a comment. It helps us stay visible. Also, think about becoming a patron. Patrons, thank you very much for supporting the show over the past 19 months. Also, a special thank you to Keeps for sponsoring this episode. And like always, this is not financial advice, trading advice, legal advice, or personal advice. Now, without further ado, part two of the Gox Saga. We'll see you after the show. Kim Nielsen, investigator of the Mt. Gox story and former Mt. Gox customer. Welcome to Crypto 101, sir. Thank you. Nice to be here. Kim, before we go into the Mt. Gox story and the years of research that you have conducted about the losses, the revival, and the different players' positions in this story, let's learn a little bit about yourself. I'm basically a normal software engineer. Uh, I live in Japan now. moved here 10 years ago. I code by day, and a couple of years ago, I developed a hobby of Mt. Gox uh, investigation uh, tricks. Basically, as you started out saying, I was a customer at Mt. Gox when Mt. Gox went down, lost money there, got really, really annoyed, and figured that, you know what, I don't think the police are necessarily going to be able to solve this. I don't think the government is going to be able to help. We might need to see what we can do. Uh, I knew roughly what Bitcoin was about. I knew how it worked. I knew that everything is on the blockchain and the public ledger. Figured like, hey, we might be able to actually have a look at this and see if we can investigate it from the outside instead of needing to ask the police for help. So I basically started doing that, got together with some friends at the time and had a whack at basically trying to look at the blockchain, see if I could find what had happened to Mt. Gox, were there any coins being stolen, getting in touch with other people involved in the case, trying to get access to more data, more information, try to slowly puzzle all this together into uh, figuring out what had happened, basically. And that was a story that ended up taking years. Wow. First, I want to say the persistence of following a story for so many years like Mt. Gox is impressive. It takes dedication and commitment. How much Bitcoin did you lose on the exchange? Just out of curiosity. Not a lot of Bitcoin, like less than a dozen. It was a it was a decent amount at the time to me. I was I've never been a big investor of any sort. I had some to play around with. It was worth a decent amount of money, so I was really annoyed. But you know, it it wasn't the amount of money that you destroy your life over. So I was annoyed, and that's why I kept going. And I'm very persistent. Now, talking to that persistence. What led you to persist to keep writing long-length articles and blogs and digging into the research for so many years? And I'm asking this question because most people would just say, eh, I'm done after a year or two, or maybe they would hit a brick wall and they would say, 
It's too hard. But you kept going. Why? Yeah, I mean, I won't lie. I mean, there were times where I hit I hit those walls too. Places where I got to a point where I felt like, what's the next step, really? And I felt like I couldn't make any more progress. And then every time something would happen or I would get some new piece of data or I would look at it, look at it from some new angle and then make a little bit of more progress and that would sort of keep me motivated to keep going. I think it helped that it's such a large case that normally it's not something a single person could investigate. I think it's too much data, really. In my case, I think it worked out to my advantage because it means that if I grew tired of looking at one angle, I could always switch and look at something else for a while. And that basically kept me going for about, I'd say about three years of solid investigation. Let's start at the beginning. Let's start at Mt. Gox losing money. Well, they didn't just lose money once. They lost money many times over time. Can you tell us about that? Yes, that, that's a fair way to put it. There were there were multiple incidents where Mt. Gox lost money. The big one uh, that lost them the, the bulk of the money happened spread out over time, which was somewhat surprising for people to find out in that you would normally not think this is possible because exchanges are supposed to keep a close eye on their Bitcoin storage, which apparently didn't happen on Mt. Gox. So th- that was surprising to a lot of people. Can you tell us that story, what you found in your investigation was it Mark's irresponsibility as the owner of Mt. Gox at the time that led to the massive hack or the siphoning off of hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin? And for my episode with Brock Pierce, Brock said that Mark was literally baking instead of being responsible and observing what was happening in the operations of his exchange. Can you comment on that? I don't know if there's a simple, single answer to Mt. Gox. Like I said, it's a very complicated case, but uh, like I mentioned earlier, the one th- big thing that I found was that coins were being stolen out over a long period of time. That implies that they couldn't have been watching, and that raises obvious questions like, okay, why wasn't Mark watching it then? Uh, my research is about data and numbers. I don't try to get into people's heads because uh, I can't know what anyone was thinking. I've heard rumors that Mark was busy with other stuff or spreading himself too thin and, and at the same time not allowing other people to look at the numbers. If that's true, yeah, that certainly sounds like he's, it was very irresponsible. I have said in some of my summaries and my presentations on this that I consider Mt. Gox to be originally a failure of being hacked, but it was made magnitude worse by not having a proper response or detection of that hack. And I think that stands true uh, still today. So, of course, you don't want to speculate of what was going on in somebody's head. But what did the numbers say? What did the numbers tell you about where the Bitcoin was being siphoned off to and how it was being siphoned off? I've, I've tracked a number of different incidents uh, of different values and different numbers at different times. The biggest one was a bit over 600, about 630,000 Bitcoins that was slowly stolen out of the hot wallet and went to eventually went through a network of wallets owned by this uh, this Russian guy that's in, in prison in, in Greece right now. That's the bulk of the theft. There were also other incidents. Some of them happened really early before Mark Carbless even took over the exchange. That, so they happened under Jed McCaleb instead. Some of them happened during the transition period. There were some smaller thefts. There were some bugs that destroyed 2,000 Bitcoins, things like that. Lots of different incidents that all contributed to in total over 850,000 bitcoins missing or lost or destroyed or stolen. You brought up a couple of people, Jeb McCaleb and a Russian guy. Can you please tell us all the people that were involved in the Mount Gox saga? Oh, that's a that's a tall order. Uh, Mt. Gox originally founded and became sort of a bitcoin exchange in 2010 by Jed McCaleb. 
uh, by late 2010, to, late 2010, Jed had decided that he wanted to get rid of the exchange and have someone else operate it so he could move on to other things. Uh, he asked around. One of the people he communicated with and negotiated with for a handover was Mark Karplus, who was running a Japanese company and had, I think he had done some minor consulting work as well for Mt. Gox. They drew up an agreement and eventually got handed over, which was basically the entire company in exchange for six months of profit sharing. Ever since then, uh, around spring of 2011, it was run by Mark Karpolis. Mark had started off rough with some more incidents that lost Bitcoin. There was a big hack in June of 2011, which was due to old passwords being compromised because they were stored with a weak hash. Then around September 2011, this Russian hack starts happening that leaks Bitcoin out slowly. Around late 2012 or early 2013, Mongox is more or less running dry on the Bitcoin front. Uh, they're getting by on daily transfers because people, people keep depositing money and, and enough to cover people, everyone that wants to withdraw money, but it's basically running on fumes. And this basically goes to finally collapses in early 2014, and that's where we see uh, the Mongox bankruptcy start. Who was this Russian guy? And did they recover any Bitcoins if the Bitcoins were being leaked out to him and his account? So the Russian guy in jail is called Alexander Vinik. He is someone that appeared in my investigation. Uh, he was one of the few names that I was able to identify. He basically acted, I believe, as the money launderer for these stolen Bitcoins. As they came out of Mt. Gox, they were sent into Vinik's wallet. He moved them around a bit. Some of which he moved to BTCE. Some of them he moved to Trade Hill. Some of them he moved to Bitcoinica. Some of them to, uh, to Mt. Gox itself as well uh, to sell them off as as, as stolen coins and tried to transfer them into uh, into cash, I believe. Much, much later, uh, more people are starting to see this and, and uh, the US is starting their own investigation as well. And they find this as well. And there's an arrest warrant out for Vinik that eventually caught him while he was on vacation in Greece. And that's, and that's basically where that story is still on pause today because they're fighting over his extradition. Gotcha, gotcha. Going into the ownership of Mt. Gox and some of the creditors of Mt. Gox, can you let us know where Mt. Gox sits with the creditors. I hear multiple stories. Can you please help us clarify? All right, uh, let me try to recap the bankruptcy story as well, as, as shortly and briefly as I can. It's, by all means, it's as complicated as the Mt. Gox story itself. So basically, when Mt. Gox collapsed, uh, the website was going down, they disabled withdrawals and whatnot. And eventually, I believe it was on February 24th, 2014, they closed down the website. Or was it the 28th? Anyway, end of February. At that point, Montgox files for uh, civil rehabilitation in the uh, in, in, with the Tokyo court, and that's basically similar to uh, filing for bankruptcy protection in this case. So basically, uh, stalling for time and, and looking for options for how you can restructure and save the company and recover from losses and whatnot. It's in this time window that Brock Pierce's company, uh, Sunlot approached Mark Karpolis, or rather Tiban, the company that Mark Karpolis owns, which in turn owes Mt. Gox, and negotiates to try to uh, acquire the uh, Mt. Gox shares that Tiban owns. And they're, they, they're negotiated for this, and they, they sign a letter of intent for it. But before any of that gets finalized, basically Mark realizes that Mt. Gox is in civil rehabilitation, which means that you can't do anything without the permission of the court. So he basically tries to wind that back and restart negotiations properly under the court. And then that never went anywhere further from that. So that basically uh, negotiation stalled and never went anywhere. A while after that, after some push from creditors, Mt. Gox is instead files for bankruptcy, which means to liquidate all assets and try to pay them out to creditors, which basically is admitting failure to rehabilitate 
and instead just giving up. And, and now it, it became a normal bankruptcy proceeding where you get hold of all creditors, you make a list of how much everyone was supposed to have, and then you look at what's left in terms of money and you pay that back out. Now, Mongox is special because there's quite a lot of money left in Mongox. Uh, there was 200,000 Bitcoins found after the collapse that was still untouched. So those are the assets that are now, everyone's now trying to figure out how to pay them back to the creditors. This is a legal bureaucracy, so of course that takes a ton of time. And that's why this is dragging out for years and years. Basically, that's the way it's been for quite some time until coming up into 2017 with the ever-increasing Bitcoin price, where the case run in, runs into a an unforeseen corner case of the law, basically, where the Bitcoin price has appreciated so much that these 200,000 Bitcoins are now worth enough to cover what the dollar value of everyone's original Bitcoin holdings were worth at the time the bankruptcy started. And under bankruptcy law, everything counts as that value as of the commencement of the bankruptcy, which means that as of that point, there was an absurd surplus of funds, meaning that everyone would get paid out as much as their Bitcoins were worth in 2014. And then there would still be money left and you would pay that to the shareholder, in this case, uh, to Bon and partially Jed McCaleb. And of course, Tiban being owned by Mark Karpolis, some of that would then go to Karpolis. Now, that's obviously an outrageous uh, outcome that no one was willing to accept, but that's the law of how bankruptcies are supposed to work. So since that point, creditors have been working to instead push Mankox back into civil rehabilitation. So back to the original sort of attempt to restructure the company in a way to handle its funds without bankruptcy liquidation. And that was eventually approved by the court uh, in the middle of last year. So ever since then, the bankruptcy trustee has been working instead to, to draw up a plan where everyone's claim can be uh, reevaluated and paid out to creditors in full instead of any of this shareholder nonsense. And that's basically where the bankruptcy is today. So just out of curiosity, I ran it through a quick calculator really quick. 200,000 Bitcoin at today's prices is $727.5 million. Yeah. How much of that is going to the creditors and how much of that would go to the shareholders? At the moment, all of that is going to the creditors. And some of those Bitcoins have been sold by the trustee during the bankruptcy and they were sold at a higher price. So actually the assets of the estate is a bit more than those $700 million. But at the moment, since it's no longer a bankruptcy, that quirk of the law does no longer apply. So at the moment, none of that is going to shareholders. It's just a matter of figuring out how to count everyone's creditor claims, and then they will get paid out to the creditors. Recently, there's been dispute of ownership of Mt. Gox. It seems as though with the amount of money involved and the possibility that some of that profit or surplus would go to the shareholders, it seems as good an incentive for people to come out and try to claim ownership. Is this what you're seeing? I don't know, but I wouldn't blame anyone for thinking that. It certainly looks a bit suspicious to suddenly come in and say... Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. By the way, I own all of this and be extremely focused on this surplus that, as we just established, we've, as creditors, have spent a lot of time to make sure that that won't happen. And then suddenly now someone appears and seems very focused on that surplus and talking about ownership of the company again. 
it seems a bit suspicious. I don't know if that's the motivation behind it, but it doesn't help the credibility, uh, I would say. And now a word from our sponsor, Keeps. Losing hair sucks. How do I know? Well, I see all my friends around me starting to lose their hair. They get a little embarrassed, a little self-conscious, do the comb over, and, well, other weird hairstyles. Now, Keeps is here. One of the easiest, most affordable way to keep the hair you have. These FDA-approved products used to cost so much, but now, thanks to Keeps, they're finally inexpensive and easy to get. For five minutes now and just $1 a day, you'll never have to worry about your hair loss again. Getting started with Keeps is so easy. Sign up takes less than five minutes. Just answer a few questions, snap some photos of your dome. A licensed physician will review your information online, recommend you the right treatment, and then Keeps is shipped to your door every three months. Keeps is only $10 to $35 a month. Plus, now you can get your first month free. That's a hell of a deal for getting to keep your hair. To receive your first month treatment for free, go to keeps.com slash crypto. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash crypto. That's a month free of treatment at keeps.com slash crypto. Keeps hair today, hair tomorrow. Now back to the show. This next question is about Brock Pierce's intentions with Gox Rising. Brock Pierce has stated that Mount Gox is synonymous with what's wrong with the crypto space. It taints our efforts and the space in general. And one of Brock's biggest sells on Gox Rising is paying off the creditors. But as we just established, creditors are going to get paid no matter what. They will be paid first. So is Brock's intentions genuine? It's not genuine, but not just because of the reason you, you mentioned. It's not that creditors are getting paid back full in their 2014 evaluation. It's that they're getting all the money that's there regardless of their claim valuation. So this horrible thing that Brock is talking about that he wants to fix has already been fixed. That's not going to happen anymore. He's basing this on information that is out of date. This hasn't been the case since early last year. And the only reason I can imagine for why he won't correct himself after this has been pointed out to him multiple times is that he's being dishonest and misleading people. And I don't know exactly why, but yeah, it, it, it's simply not honest at all to say that there is a surplus that's going to Mark Carpolis unless we let Brock come in and take over. In what ways has this been resolved already? You just said that Brock's information is out of date and that he does not need to be involved at this point. So what was resolved up to this point? The thing that has been resolved is that it's no longer, legally speaking, a bankruptcy. It's a civil rehabilitation. And that distinction is important, both because there's more flexibility involved in a, in a civil rehabilitation when it comes to valuing claims and how you pay them out, but also the fact that the process is restarted, which means that you can value claims at more modern values. That means that you never get to that absurd point where the value of the current Bitcoins held by the estate becomes bigger than the claims when they were originally valued. So at the moment, there is no surplus because everyone's claims are valued much higher. It's a tricky legal quirk. It was never supposed to ever happen because bankruptcy law never predicted that assets could appreciate this wildly. But nonetheless, it is definitely it is a fact that this has been resolved by the fact that we converted the case back to civil rehabilitation in the court. And as a result, the only way that this could ever come into dispute again is if someone gets into the case and starts to dispute that and starts to claim ownership or something like that. And that's why a lot of people are suspicious of what Brock is doing, because why would he bring this up when it's already been resolved? Talking about civil rehabilitation 
and from a perspective of somebody that had Bitcoin in Mt. Gox, what outcome would you like to see? Honestly, I mean, it's been years. Everyone should just get paid back whatever was left. That's always been the case. The reason why this takes so long is because this has to go through a legal bureaucracy. Everything has to be confirmed. You need to be able to try to filter out people who incorrectly claim or fraudulently claim money so that they don't get paid out. So you need to have this screening process. It needs to be approved by courts and whatnot. But essentially, the only outcome that creditors should see from this is just pay all the money out because that belongs to the creditors in the first place. And then whatever you do after that point, if you want to restart a new exchange or something that, and you want to place a bid for the Mt. Gox name and use that for your exchange, that's fine. That's great. I mean, Brock likes to argue in these very wide and general terms about how we need big, better exchanges and things. And I think pretty much everyone is agreeing with that. And I think we further agree that if you want to avoid regulation of the industry, that's something that we need to solve ourselves by building ourselves newer and better exchanges. So, I mean, if Brock wants to do that, kudos to him. I mean, great, go for it. What he's being criticized for is injecting himself into the legal process at a point where we just had this massive battle over setting things right. And then he rushes in like a bull in the china shop and seems very uninformed about it or actively spreading misinformation and confusing things. Like, no, stay out of that. I mean, just let that run its course. Let us fix that part, and then we can worry about the rest. You said that Brock's coming in like a bull in a china shop. Does that really matter at this point? Because it's already been a long time. It's already been years, and the creditors have not seen any rehabilitation. From your perspective and your opinion, are you upset with Brock being involved because of the extra time that it might add to the rehabilitation or the creditors seeing any money? Uh, I would have argued the same even if this had been just a year into the process. It's not just about him being confused and, and confusing creditors. It's about get it done right or don't do it at all. Like, Don't come in and do something like this and base it on dishonest claims. You could have done this. I mean, it sounds, the way he describes all of this, it sounds like he wants to do the right thing. and He wants to do something nice for creditors. And all I'm saying is you could have done all that and been honest about it and not been misleading people, not throwing false information into the process and and just do the bare minimum of what you actually need to do what you're claiming that you're all about. Uh, he can't really sabotage the process because he has no legal standing for the ownership claim, for example. The worst, the worst thing I see he could possibly do, which he claims he doesn't want to do, and, and if he doesn't, then fine. But if he thinks he has a leg to stand on in his ownership claim, he could, for example, try to litigate over it. He could say, go to the bankruptcy trustee, go to the court and say, no, I actually insist that I own these shares and we have to sort that out. And then basically he won't win that, but it will still take time and resources to at least formally handle that case. So it would it would still take time. It would still be an annoyance. And meanwhile, as someone who has spent a lot of time digging into this case and just trying to get to the truth of the matter, I object on a very personal level that someone is coming in and he's trying to confuse the matter and rewrite the story. What are those dishonest claims that he's making? I think it's very easy for someone to say, hey, they're being dishonest. Right. Like what you said, ownership. But what is he using to validate those claims? specifically? Uh, back in 2014, immediately after Mt. Gox went down, Brock's company went to Carpolis and negotiated to try to buy Mt. Gox front to bond. That is undisputed. It's certainly true. They signed a letter of intent, which is what you signed at the beginning of negotiation to outline the negotiations and what you want this to lead towards. At the conclusion of those negotiations, you've, you sign the actual formal agreement that sets the final terms of the acquisition, and then you're done. In this case, what happened was that they signed the letter of intent, and then Mark 
basically got told off by the court and said, no, you can't do that. You're under civil rehabilitation. You can't enter into any deal for Mt. Gox without the court being aware of it and approving it. So Mark went back the day after or two days after, went back to Brock and said, no, you know what? This wasn't cool. We had to we had to restart the process. Could you please sign this confirmation that we have mutually rescinded this letter of intent that we signed the other day so we can make a clean slate? Now, this is where the straight up dishonesty, in my opinion, starts because Brock has refused to sign that document. And instead, he argues that since that document has the chapter heading of confirmation, he's saying that this is a letter where Mark confirms that he sold the company. But it was only ever a letter of intent. This was never a finalized deal. There was no legal right to sell Mt. Cox like that. But this is what Brock, even to this day, is claiming that, no, this is actually a finalized deal. It was legally binding. Mt. Cox belongs to him, except he doesn't ever intend to make any claims on it. But he still insists on it. And it's there's no way you could look at the material and come to that conclusion which makes me conclude that instead that he is intentionally misleading people or has convinced himself that this is the reality he lives in. Now, I know we don't want to speculate, even though we might have speculated quite a bit along this journey, but I think everybody knows that an LOI is not a legally binding document for sale or for purchase of an asset or a company or anything. Is it possible that Brock actually has other documentation or there has been other documentation filed besides the LOI or there is wording within the LOI that could prove or make a more substantial claim to ownership of Mt. Cox? No, uh, I don't see any possibility of that. If there had been better evidence, Brock would have shown it, if not to the public, then to the court. Because basically now there's nothing but this letter of intent, which proves nothing. And in this case, the absence of evidence is evidence of absence, in my opinion. I know this is a speculative question again, and let's keep Brock or any other actor out of this. But I want to understand the motives of trying to claim ownership of something that's bankrupt, that has creditors coming after money, and that has a bad brand. There seemed no other motivation besides the possible payout to shareholders if there is a surplus. Is that the possible benefit? I don't know if there is any financial benefit to it at all. I mean, the surplus isn't there. Uh, you could possibly argue that if you're the owner, you could have a prior claim or even get like the remaining intangible assets of the estate. For example, you can get that back to you for for nothing after you're done with the bankruptcy. It's a possibility like that. Maybe Brock sees that there is value in that in trying to restart the exchange. Maybe he wants to, as he said, rebuild a new better exchange from the ashes of Mt. Gox, which, is, which would be an honorable cause in that case. But you could do all that without any of the dishonesty at play, which is my main objection. I I react very badly to people being intellectually dishonest. I think Brock may have, at points in the past, really wanted to do the right thing here, and and he was trying to get hold of Mt. Gox, and maybe it really, really disturbed him that he lost that opportunity. Maybe he still thinks Mt. Gox is something he can make a big benefit from, either financially or just in terms of reputation. He certainly seems to be doing a lot of milking of this for reputation already, even though he's done nothing so far except make the presentation with all the running around making interviews and and with basically every podcast and, and newspaper he can get hold of. That kind of makes one wonder, like, are you doing it just to get like some good PR out of it? Because you'll get the good PR now, but no one's going to bother reporting on when you didn't follow through on it, I guess. Thank you for that. And I 100% agree. I think that a lot of times that a lot of people just focus on the headlines um, and don't do follow-up. And I would hope, and I'm going to make a commitment to myself and put a call out to other podcasters or YouTubers that have had Brock, yourself, or other actors in the Mount Gox and Gox Rising saga on their shows to do follow-up after all of this is said and done and this goes under the carpet again let's go back reevaluate and see what happened and the outcome from all of this 
So I thank you for that statement. Yeah, I mean, I think doing anything other than that is sort of lets people like this bank on the short-term memory of the media in the space because we look at today's news, but a lot of the stuff happening, and especially especially in complex cases like this, stuff doesn't happen in a single day. I mean, you'll you'll have the start of the process today and the end of the process from 18 months from now. Like, who's going to have the memory to keep that in mind if the media doesn't do that properly? I mean... I kind of think that the reason that all of this looks so much like a poorly thought through media spectacle is because I think it is a poorly thought through media spectacle. Interesting thought. So what Brock or anyone is getting from this is PR. He's, I mean, he certainly is. I mean, that's, that's not even in dispute. I mean, he's clearly getting a massive amount of positive media recognition for it. Well, I don't know about 100% positive. Well, I mean... I would say there's probably more negative than positive. Well, let's just say that he, he gets his side of the story out first, and that can be worth it all. Okay, fair enough. Before we go, I want to say thank you very much for coming on. And I know it's super late in Japan right now. I think it's like 5 or 6 a.m. And you stayed up. You said you're a night owl, but you stayed up all night to talk to us and share this story. So thank you very much. You're welcome. It was nice coming on. But before we go, I want to ask you one last question. For somebody that has been following the space ever since the early days, are you bullish on the future of blockchain and cryptocurrency? The short, simple answer. Yeah. Yeah. the technology is here. It's not going away. It's already revolutionized the world. It's going to keep doing that. Perhaps not as explosively as some people would like to see it, but it, it's changed the way we look at finance for, for better or worse. Uh, and it's going to keep doing that. So am I bullish in the sense that Bitcoin will never go down to zero because it, it's never going to have zero value again. So in that sense, I think it's more likely to go up than down. Right on, Kim. Thank you very much for coming on Crypto 101. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. Kim, if you're listening, thank you very much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to meet you, sir, and I hope to see you one day in Japan or at a Bitcoin conference somewhere around the world. In this next episode, we talk to Mr. Richard Hart about Bitcoin Hex and how Bitcoin, he feels, failed as a cryptocurrency. This episode is an edited version of the live video that Richard and I did last week. So if you want to see the live video, you can go to Richard's YouTube channel, Richard Hart, and watch it there. Or listen to this next episode, which is edited and much more concise. Like always, ApogeeCrypto.com, A-P-O-G-E-E Crypto.com, the best place for your real-time prices. And I want to say thank you very much to Mr. Jay LaBella for editing this episode. We'll see you in future episodes of Crypto 101. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.